Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. Today's guest is Vince Pizzullo, Deputy Head of Equities and Portfolio Manager at Perpetual. Vince joined Perpetual in 2007 and has covered a heap of sectors since then, including chemicals, financials, banking, telecommunications, materials, and REITs. He now heads up the Australian Share Fund, Geared Australian Share Fund, Direct Equity Alpha Fund, and the Perpetual Equity Investment Company, an LIC with the ticket code PIC. Today, we take a granular look at the effect inflation is having on valuations. And without giving too much away, Vince doesn't necessarily agree with everything the market is telling us. The market might be down, but Vince is investing with some pretty high conviction, including one stock worthy of putting in the bottom drawer. Our three favorite questions will book in the episode, as always, but we've swapped out one of them to make it a bit more timely, and I think you'll really like the new inclusion. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a LiveWire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post content. Not a LiveWire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. All right, Vince, welcome to Rules of Investing. It's great to have you on. Thanks for the invitation. Okay. If I was a fly on the wall in the perpetual offices, what's the dominant conversation I'd be hearing right now about markets? Um, right now, we all, you always try and look for a fair way forward when you're trying to consider what to do next. Um, and right now, we're thinking about margins for companies. Uh, you've got two years of pretty record, very high margins across the board. For most industries, outside of those, we're, we're directly shut due to corona. Uh, but a lot of them had no need to advertise. So that's always good, good for no promotions required because you're selling out anything you put online. Um, staff con- costs were pretty controlled at that point and there was no inflation at that stage. And, and helicopter money. And helicopter money always helps. Uh, the first real proper experiment of, you know, effectively direct deposits through your employer, right, through the government, so via the, from the government. So today we're thinking about, right, those things are reversing. Right now, you've got um, wages now structurally moving higher. Now, that is structural in a sense, and it could be two to three years where that's the case. Uh, all else being equal, if the Fed and the central banks don't go super aggressive, uh, which means I'll be a bit stickier. You know, Fair Work Commission coming out and saying five plus percent wage increases, uh, that's sort of locking it in. Uh, most companies we speak to report not having enough people to fill the roles. Uh, that sort of tells you that they're going to have to pay their installed or current employees more, et cetera, which will be above ward wages, right? So it's quite a, a sticky price, uh, wage increase. Uh, and But now you've got all other inputs to, you know, the factors of production, they're going up. And there's we don't have the demand problem yet. As, as in weakening demand, demand's still pretty persistent. But what you've got is a, a persistent supply problem. Uh, so we're talking about which of those industries are going to struggle to hold their margins. We feel that most companies will margins will come back a bit because they're going to have to react to um, the higher base inflation rate. And therefore, as we go through the lists of companies we look at, we look at what's the market pricing in. There's a lot of companies like discretionary that have been hammered uh, where the market's trying to look a bit further forward and there's been pretty pretty big discounts put onto those stocks. 
Uh, but there's a lot of companies also that are considered to be quite safe and stable where there's a, I think that it's an illusion that they're actually as safe and stable as you think because the same cost inputs will affect them as much. And they're usually, like you think about retailers, the big retailers like Woolies and Coles, they're going to be okay, but they run very low margins. They're like 4 to 5% margin businesses. So any change in your cost base could be quite material in those. What has to, what has to give? I mean, is it investment that dives? It's actually typically the reverse of that, that if you're a CFO of a, a company and you've got structural costs in your business, the first thing you do is go get rid of Unfortunately, you move staff on to try and find an easy saving that way. But given that you've got a lot of unfilled roles, what happens is just you don't fill the roles. You probably won't get rid of people at this stage. Uh, you actually have to, if you look at CapEx during Corona, it fell materially during that period because people didn't know what the demand profile looked like, right? So they saved cash by not having to spend on their, their business in whether it's a new plant or invest in new technology, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but now if you've got any, uh, structural inflation, you actually have to invest back in your business to get down the cost curve because it's the game theory of it. If you don't do it and your competitor does it and they lower their cost of operating, they'll be able to take share off you. And if you don't also, if you don't do it now with inflation heading up, you're going to have to discount more. Yeah, that's right. So you arguably should have been doing it when it was quiet because then it was cheaper. But now you're doing it in, and this is the, the, a bit of the game theory and group think that goes on is, um, and this always always tie it back to, always have a look at the remuneration of the CEOs and the senior management because they all would try to get paid. And um, historically, if you look at uh, a world where we had low cost of debt, we were offshoring everything and you were encouraged to be a virtual company as in don't have any assets, so have very low assets or uh, capitalization in assets, which means your asset turn can be really high. Have all your staff offshore, which means you can maintain your profit margins and have virtually no inventory. So again, that's on the asset side. You have low, very low inventory. And because debt's cheap, gear up and buy back stock. So that's the DuPont, that's the ROE, DuPont ROE it's called. You're now in a world where cost of debt's going up and spread credit spreads are going up. You haven't got enough staff to do the jobs you're meant to be doing today. And because of the inventory, um, this lengthening the supply chain, you're probably going to carry more inventory at this stage on balance sheet and in the country. That's burning up cash, which means your asset turn is going to be slightly lower. Uh, you're paying more for the factors of production I mentioned earlier, which means your margins are under pressure and you can't gear up because spreads are blowing out. So <laughs> you are always technically going backwards in that environment. And for CEOs, I are encouraged to do the opposite of that. So now do we start saying I'm <laughs> going off a bit pieced here, but that's a bit of a mind, a mind change for, for uh, CEOs in particular. So for us, the way we look at it is uh, let's look at the companies that have actually been able to invest and have, uh, have a good balance sheet to be able to do it. What's your view on valuations at the moment? I know I read your your monthly update, I think it was for May, mm -hmm. and you think growth stocks are still too expensive. Do you still hold that thesis? Yeah, I, I, there's some, they're more on the radar now than they've ever been uh, because you've seen that that uh, risk premium, expansion of the risk premium people are willing to pay, uh, expecting to pay or require, sorry, and the discount rate's definitely gone up. Uh, so they're closer, but... Um, they're, they're, the school thought is, are we in the 70s? 
Whereas if we're in the 70s, um, everyone's looking at the S&P 500 on 15, 16 times. Well, trade on eight times in the 70s because you had high levels of push through inflation and inability to sort out the supply situation in energy, obviously, but a lot of things. And um, the central bank tightened pretty aggressively to try and get rid of it. Uh, and if you look at those two stages, then they cut because the thing slowed so quickly and inflation spiked again. So you get this whipsawing sort of outcome. Um, so this is one of the greatest risks is how people have to assess how serious do they think the central banks are in controlling inflation. What's the level? Is it zero to 2%, which is what they want, the Goldilocks sort of situation. But what if it settles between, this is what you've got to think about, if it settles between three and four, double that rate. How serious do they want to get it down? Because unless you control inflation, it can be quite damaging to the economy. Obviously, the first order issue we're talking about really is inflation. Because when we're talking about rates, we're talking about inflation and everything kind of feeds from there. When we're talking about inflation, the primary driver of that has got to be energy, the energy sector, surely. And are we at a point now where the energy sector is really holding the global economy hostage? So energy is always the tax on global growth. So when it goes up a lot, it effectively stops and makes things a lot more. It's just second and third order derivatives of what happens to energy as it filters through the economy are quite material. And as I said, it, it affects low-margin businesses and, high, and less so high-margin businesses. Uh, but we're in a situation where there's been policy decisions made years ago regarding decarbonisation, which if you're a rational and sensible logical individual and you're running one of these energy companies, they're saying, we don't like your product. And you're sitting there going, well, I've got these uh, reserves which go out for 10, 15 years. Well, I'm going to do CapEx blow depreciation and take cash out of the thing, right? And now you've had, um, it's like a culmination of a perfect storm where you've had a bit of an insight into what the future may look like if we have uh, some of those renewables don't stack up in the being a, an ability to become baseload, which I don't think they can. And you have a strategic change in the way energy flows around the world, i.e. Ukraine, Russia. The world's sort of not set up for anything to, for that sort of outcome. And you've seen what's happened, like the gas price being up 10 times, as in natural gas price, being up 10 times where it was a few years ago. Because of this situation where they, Europe's trying to win itself off Russian gas, that gas is going somewhere else. So those trade flows are shifting. So the buyers of that gas are now very different to where they were 10 years ago. So therefore, it's hard to reverse that once it goes. The only, usually, the, usually the only way is price. You pay price high enough, you can uh, change uh, trade flows. So what does Germany do if, they, if there isn't enough development? Uh, and Europe in particular, they have to accept, they just have to accept a very high cost for energy, which again, if you look at the price of energy in North America for gas versus Europe, it's a fraction of it. So as an industry and as an economy, you've got to accept potentially lower growth. Someone has to wear that cost. It's going to be the consumer typically. So that sucks up your discretionary income, but you know you follow the second order. So it's a lot harder for uh, a lot of these countries to have to deal with it. That's why maybe inflation is a little bit more embedded and you can't get away from energy. It does tend to lead everything. Uh, look, at, look at the last time the energy fell materially, the gas oil price went negative in Corona. You've actually literally stopped global everything 
no travel, locking your homes, et cetera, et cetera. I think we, it was the only period where we were actually on track for that 1.5 degree. There you go. Increase. So have a think about that if, if for, tw- for 20, 30 years, what we need to do. So you'll see other buyers pop up and you'll seeing it in, in Asia as well. So those other buyers are now coming from Asia, et cetera, India. Those, they're buying a lot of Russian oil and gas already. It's going to be slower because um, gas into Eastern, Western Europe via a pipeline is very different to whacking on an LNG ship and sending it around. It's ironic that the West has cut off energy from Russia. So what does Russia do? It goes to Asia. And what does the West do? Asia becomes a the customer. That's so right. the whole thing, it's like a zero-sum game. It all just nets out in the end. That's what it does, yeah. Staying on energy, uh, you're long Santos. What do you like about San- Santos? Um, it's a gas play, obviously, less oil. Uh, you know, it's the merger takeover Santos of oil search. Uh, for oil search, you know, you've got a bigger business which is more diversified in its sources of gas, more onshore gas in Australia. Uh, you've got Dorado, a few other um, fields in Australia, and then you've got the development of PNG, LNG, and gas up in, in PNG, which is a very low cost of gas. There's existing infrastructure up there, the partners, you know, being Exxon and Total uh, up in PNG. You know, any sort of new development will, on the cost curve, you think of the global cost curve, like PNG is a reasonably cheap source of, of gas. Uh, and any development there, you probably, especially now, if you're thinking about um, pushing the button on development of new fields, if you look at the slope, you think about the thing called the slope, which is the, the um, what the gas producer will get as a percentage of the oil price. Slopes have gone from 8 to 9% to 15 16%, which means you know, you're thinking about your return on capital because, as I said to you, they are long lead times, large amounts of capital outlay at the start. The ability to sign a contract on that would be pretty high. And what's happened in the gas market up until Corona hit was a lot of people, more than a lot of the buyers of energy were more willing to go spot the spot market. But now <laughs> they've shown a bit of a window as to what happens when you've got no contracts, I expect. And because the Europeans in particular are looking to sign contracts, they don't want to sit the spot market because they want to lock in at least a basis of supply. Uh, so that's going to crowd them. That's going to force the market to probably go more spot. Uh, sorry, more uh, contractual. So as a developer of a field, contracts are perfect because you lo- you basically lock in the return, right? Yeah. And there, though, the, a lot of the contracts that were being done, if any, were very short dated. Uh, now, what's happening is all the buyers are going to ask for longer dated sp- contracts, and if that's the case, you ask you're going to get more out of it as a producer. It almost mirrors the the inventory story from. Just in time, just in case. Now the, That's exactly the gas right. market's doing it too. A bit of uncertainty, um, which is what happens in cycles. A bit of uncertainty tends to – the recency of behaviour of the last 10 years has fooled people into thinking things are very stable and inherently what's the – I think the quote is, the more stable things become, the more unstable they are because people get f- become uh, quite comfortable with stability and you do- it doesn't take much to, to flip things around. We've had that. Also, it wasn't a little thing. It was a pretty major thing. Uh, so for Santos, they're like in a reasonably good position in that. We also like it because uh, carbon sequestration is going to be a thing, I think. And if you think about the whole energy complex, you talked about we had to have basically zero GDP, negative GDP growth to hit the one and a half degree target. 
I think people are going to realise that you need to have a spread of energy sources and that maybe carbon sequestration or carbon capture becomes more of a sensible outcome. It's an expensive technology, but it might be a necessary one because you don't want to throw out the fossil fuels immediately. If you can net out the, the impact of them, then you've got the same solution. So with Santos, they're actually probably ahead of the curve on that. Just on the point about uh, going from spot price to contracts, does that do they lose out on their pricing power at all by doing that? Yeah, well, you, as you said, you get you take tend to get excluded from the spot market where you can make super normal profits. Uh, we're of the view if you can lock, you don't do one hundred percent of your base because. Uh, what you produce because there might be times where the plant goes down, might be an accident, so you declare force majeure. Uh, so you don't have to, you may not be able to execute on that contract, and you don't want to go into a market where you're buying spot to satisfy a contract. So um, give a little bit away, but if you're spending a couple of bill up front and you can get a fifteen to twenty percent return on capital, and you give away the twenty to twenty five percent on capital, which may occur for a very short time, as a steward of capital, you do that deal straight away where you take the contract, if you're getting those levels of return. And uh, for a shareholder, there's certainty, you take that, particularly if the, the stock price is not pricing that in. right? So, And we feel like, like that's definitely the case with Santos at the moment is the market's not pricing in the fact that we're going to probably move to a market which is short LNG still. There are no active decisions today where people are putting more money into LNG development uh, and you saw the Freeport LNG terminal catch fire, and they're now taking, saying it's gonna, in the US, it's taking a lot longer for it to come back on stream. You get overnight moves on the back of that. So you can see how tenuous the supply demand situation is in LNG. And with Santos, you got that sort of in front of it. So they're becoming more tailwinds rather than headwinds of you know, spot markets and no one caring about energy. It's oh, like gas is a, a proper fuel. Everyone thinks it's a dirty fuel, but it's going to have to be part of it of the, the conversation. Is there incentive for them to invest with prices so high for their product? Uh, well, hopefully the price signal works because that's what's supposed to happen is that you get the price signal works through the market and people go, right, it's probably time to start developing or accelerating the development of certain things. But a lot of things have to fall into place. But will it work? It's a seller's market. Yeah, well, if I was uh, – this is when you want to be talking, making those, having those discussions is with your partners on these because a lot of them share the, the cap the, the capex is shared on these de- on these um, developments you need to have those co- you should already have been having those conversations they know that the numbers they need to make a, an investment stack up and when those things like those planets align you probably move pretty quickly but again there is a cost curve to lng as well so the companies that are at the lower end there they're having their they're probably moments away from making a choice on that but it does take a lot of time for that supply to hit the market. Uh, I can't imagine anyone would do a, a an expansion or a new LNG field without an underwritten contract today. And but they will be able to do it at very high returns. Okay, if we're talking about rates, we have to talk about banks. Uh, how are they going to land this plane through the, through the needle? Yeah. Uh, again, it comes back to how serious people think the central banks are. Get out getting rid of inflation. Look, the, the benefit of the banks is, you know, don't fight the last war. So they're in pretty good capital positions, very strong. Liquidity is pretty good. The central banks will set up liquidity uh, credit facilities and 
and swap and windows, et cetera, for people to swap RMBSs or whatever to ensure liquidity. But if we get in that situation, things are bad, by the way. <laughs> if banks are tapping the window, that's bad. Uh, the liquidity in the market's actually quite good in a sense that banks have the ability to lend if they need to. And the capital situation is very good. They've all got buffers they require. Thank you, GFC. Thank you, GFC. Right. Where are we today? How are the banks, if the only mechanism for central banks to get rid of inflation is to create slack in the labour market, because they can't control the, the price of oil. It's a secondary derivative. If they do that, you have to get rid of, to get the price of oil down, you have to get rid of demand. Right. Um, to get rid of asset speculation in housing, you need to, which is the wealth effect at some level, and particularly in Australia where housing is a larger part of people's wealth assets, uh, you have to get prices to go backwards, stop people spending, um, et cetera, et cetera. That's for the banks. That's where um, they're sort of like a passenger on that, is that what happens to credit bad debts in that cycle. Now, the banks are quite well provisioned. Uh, for a normal slowdown, uh, hitting the wall type situ situation, they're not because you can't have enough provisions for that. They just have to basically accept it and cut the dividend. They, you know, they cut the div first or put a DRP in, underwritten DRP to raise capital indirectly through the dividend. Uh, they, they don't plan for that. They all have scenarios where they put a model into the APRO to say, oh, in these situations, prices go down by X. This is the unemployment rate, et cetera, et cetera. Our losses are only X. No, because that ain't, that's only for one bank. If all banks are in that situation, the economy is way worse than you think and uh, bad debts are probably understated. It just depends on how quickly. Again, this is the, it goes back to how quickly you think central banks will turn around and think we've done enough. We're on top of this. Um, so what's that point? What's your base case? Um, Again, a lot of the things they're trying to solve for are out of their control. So that, do they keep pushing against it until they do create that slack in the labour market? And this goes back to the fact that immigration is still very low, right? Skilled immigration is extremely low. If you've got uh, unfilled roles, that's one of the reasons. And that's, you know, that leads to that power shifting from companies back to the labour market. Uh, an ability for them to negotiate for higher rates is because we don't have skilled immigration at the moment, or it's lower than expected, than typically normal. So, to create that slack, they need to slow down demand, and the way to do that is to be a little bit and is to be quite brutal on monetary policy. So again, I, I look back at either it's in the nineties where the setup was inflation was falling, but bound, it would pop occasionally. Uh, because you had a structural shift with Volcker crushing it and the WTO and everyone offshoring? Or is it the 70s, which is way worse because costs are persistent and they actually really had to crush it, crush the market uh, or the economy to try and build that slack. And it's not that's not great for markets, no matter where you sit. Yes, so that was my next question. If we relive the 70s, what what does that mean? For valuations, all bets are off. Yep. Basically, pretty blunt. It's going to be hard to we're, – we're a, a relative investor. We're always invested up to, you know, with certain levels of cash, ability, uh, an ability to have cash in the funds. So we always have to be in the market. In that environment, if you have to be invested, 
you know, if you look at the 70s, energy did quite well, as you would imagine, because it was an oil price shock. You had to be in those high-quality companies. But the problem is that initially they all fell because the market multiple contracted significantly. And this is a a think about, um, again, I talk about fighting the last war. A lot of people in the market today had never experienced inflation. So you always got to go back to those periods of whether it's structural or a cyclical element like in the 90s or structural like in the 70s. If you look at where policy settings are, you mentioned earlier, you had helicopter money, pretty significant uh, expansion of balance sheets, central bank balance sheets um, to try and gen- pull demand out of its stupor and it worked. And you probably pulled a few years of demand forward behaviorally. That's what you did. Now they're going to have to break those behaviors. So the markets don't typically do well in that environment. You just got to, if you're a full-time investor, you have to be invested. You want to be protecting yourself pretty significant protection, whether you just raise your cash levels or uh, being those parts of the market, you know, supermarkets do okay. Um, but the problem is really long duration assets, like they rely on discount rates, not going up, get crushed. So it's, it's, it literally is quite a mindful to get through. So how do you invest for that? How do you invest? You've got a mandate where you, where you have to stay pretty much fully invested. You have an outcome that might be a self-dish landing, not likely, or you might have the 70s. You have to hold companies. What do those companies have to have? So uh, market position. Your market position. Um, so if it's reasonably consolidated industry. Uh, you have to have an element of necessity there as well. Uh, strong management that's working, again, working in the best interest of the shareholders. There are no other things that compete with that. And it, most definitely the balance sheet, having a really good balance sheet to get through it uh, because there'll be an, an opportunity for some of those companies to take advantage of it. And whether you take out your competitor or capital exit the, exits the industry and you're one of the left, last people left standing, like for the next cycle, let's, you can make significant returns out of that, of those businesses. You know, we look at the four quality filters that we look at, which we judge every company and it's, it is uh, good management and that's a subjective measure. Again, but I would always go back to the REM package to see how they get paid, the LTIs and STIs. Uh, great balance sheet, uh, good industry. And this is all very simple things, but also they have to be profitable. And that's pretty important because a lot of concept stocks have survived for quite a while because of uh, the market's willingness to finance businesses that don't make any money or the path to profitability is well is longer than I would be willing to accept as an investor. Uh, and that's been the last couple of years. So is, there, is that, that pure reinvestment? play out the window now? The, the net, the, can we extrapolate the Netflix story to those kinds of stocks in general? Yeah. I, I, there's, as again, there's two ways to think about it is that firstly, uh, because capital is now scarce and people are holding onto their capital, it's going to be harder to finance concepts, newer, newer businesses, and they should technically always be private, financed by angel investors or VC money, et cetera. Because uh, they're willing to take that duration risk. Okay, There's, the market will take duration risk, but up to a point. 
and then it's pricing in crazy stuff, crazy valuations, et cetera, just to justify when you see 50 times multiples on sales. I've been through this before in the 2000s uh, in the 1990s. These people got the art. When you read the, when you go the cold light of day and you read what some people had written, you go, wow, how did we think about that? How did we think that way about things? Uh, but the second impact of that as well is if there's these newer types of business aren't coming in to compete against established businesses, right? The ones that have the capital and the ability to finance and can reinvest uh, are slightly different in efficiency in that they're not a new concept. It's actually great for them because there's now less competing capital against them. So you can actually do quite well out of those businesses that have had a threat against them the whole time because uh, they're maybe some of the more traditional businesses have real assets, right? Inflation, you've got to have real assets. They actually do quite well because they've got less competing capital coming against them. Uh, that's sort of like that second derivative outcome that you should be thinking about. Is there such a thing as fair value at the moment for those techie growth plays? Can they be cheap enough given the headwinds we're talking about today? I think it's really interesting that you've seen quite a few proposed transactions like takeovers in that tech space and almost all of them have been pulled, Fine enough. So the buyers are sitting there, they had a, a preconceived notion of the value of that business, but that was relying on, I suspect, what the conditions were for the discount rate and equity risk premium for the last five to seven years. That's changed. So now they're, real, they're realigning their basic cases on value to where the current settings are, which can be great because you, the action might be able to buy something which is sensible value and you're picking it up for a decent pro, a, a price well south of that. There might be some businesses which uh, are getting to that point. Um, I still think there's more value in real assets still. And if you look at what the private equity guys have been doing, what have they been buying? In Australia, for example, they bought Crown, hard assets, monopolistic assets in Crown, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, real assets where they had freehold or um, nine and nine-year type leases, but then they own all the hotels, et cetera, real assets which have a license back behind it, or Ramsey Healthcare, real assets again, hospital operator, best hospital operator in Australia. Um, we own some Western areas, which is like a nickel operator, a nickel mine in WA. Again, a real asset. That was another company bought that. IGO went in to buy Western areas. So we're, we're looking at those assets as where let the market tell you where things are. And that's where the market sees there's value, particularly if private equity are moving in that space. Uh, but you'll get a shot in long duration assets at some point. Uh, we're Probably not there yet, like whether it's real estate or some of these, you mentioned some of these more uh, technology-exposed businesses. Uh, I think it's a bit early, too early to call it. You're very bullish on gaming stocks, uh, gaming stocks but one in particular, Flutter. Uh, it's been one of the biggest contributors to your portfolio. What do you like about Flutter and talk broadly about uh, gambling stocks and what what you are are they almost secular stocks? Okay, so what do we like about Flutter is uh, they're they're an online sports bookmaker. That's their DNA. It's the old Paddy Power um, business. 
uh, they're multi-regional. They're in the UK, Ireland, in Australia with Sportsbet. They own Sportsbet in Australia. Uh, they're in India uh, in some partnerships there, etc. And in Europe, they bought a business in Italy called Seasol, which is the lottery operator, and they operate gaming machines there. Uh, a lot of these markets are highly regulated and highly consolidated. So there's usually two or three operators which dominate the market. Um, they don't have a large fixed asset base in that they don't have a lot of betting shops. In the UK, they've got some betting shops, but in Australia, they've got zero. They're just an online sports bookmaker. Well, what The other thing that really attracted us to it is quality of the management is very good. Balance sheet is very good. It generates a lot of cash flow, yeah, but it's their US online sports betting business called FanDuel, which they bought a few years ago. Um, as the regulation and legislation to change regarding online sports betting, where you could only effectively bet on sports in Nevada officially. Unofficially, you could bet anywhere, but officially you'll have to bet in Nevada. But but profits, you were saying off air, profits magically evaporate in Nevada. Yes, typically. Um, whereas uh, the laws change and it's a state-by-state uh, outcome. Each state sets their own online sports betting rules and iGaming as well. You've got to add that to as well, online casino. And New Jersey was one of the first states to open up in the US. And with FanDuel, it's a daily fantasy sports business in itself. It's, you know, fantasy footy, pick your team, you know, you bet it's for kudos more than anything else. And they had a pretty deep and largeable, a uh, sizable, sorry, large and sizable established base in DFS, daily fantasy sports. So it was obviously natural for when online sports betting was opened up that they could now market to those of age over 18, they could mark and say you can actually bet legally in this state. So their cost of acquisition in the US is, is like half the rest of the industry, materially lower. And the US is not a very sophisticated betting market yet on sports, miraculously. Australia's very sophisticated. Uh, I think we bet double more than anyone else. <laughs> and um, in the US, they are effectively number one in sports betting by a significant margin now. And the best thing that's happened in the market sort of collapsing in the last six to nine months is because one of the biggest competitors is DraftKings, which relies on equity financing to survive, to keep the business going. Um, whereas Flutter is a multi-regional, generates a significant amount of cash, and they are sports bookmakers. That's their DNA. That's where they come from. They're actually using this, the fact a lot of the, Online sports makers in the US have all derated. So it's flutter a bit. We've increased our weight in that since the derating. They're actually using their cash flow to press the advantage in the US and take their share up. And they are getting 40 to 50% share in the US, which um, if that holds for the next few years as that market matures, online sports betting grows high single digit anyway on a fully, um, a fully developed market basis. Uh, if they're holding that share, what you're paying for the market cap today, the enterprise value effectively of 20 odd billion pounds, you're virtually paying nothing, if not negative value for that US business. So for us, that's telling us that the market's sort of looking very short term. That's fine. We're happy to extend our gaze past and put a bit of duration into that stock. So that's why we like flood online uh, on gambling itself. You move in and out of them. Um, you know, tw two years ago, uh, we had an under-risk crap for 10 years because of price pretty keenly. Prior to that point, 
once effectively you couldn't go into a casino and they obviously make money selling machines to, uh, to casino operators, it halved in value. And what we looked at was, right, what's the through the cycle earnings? Things will normalize at some point down the road. What's the uh, through the cycle multiple we can pay for this company today? And you're paying 16 to 17 times where it's traditionally trade 25 plus. So for us, we bought a lot of aristocrat around there. It was about $20 range. I also did quite well as things reopened as a gainer, up to in the 40s effectively, close to the 40s, uh, mid 40s. And then we started reducing our position. So we'll be moving in out of the, these gaming stocks. A flutter's a bit more, got a bit of a structural wind behind it. Um, so that's how we think about those gambling stocks. They tend to, the online sports bookmakers tend to be able to grow through the cycle, but they, have bouts of re-regulation as well. And the state knows that because they grow pretty well. Uh, there's usually a tax change to claw a bit more back. And that, but a lot of the the reason we like Flutter as well is they're not in any grey markets. So the grey markets are the unregulated markets globally. They like lit markets where there is established gaming regulation. Right. Rather but, be but that is opening up. That is opening up, correct. Yeah. That because that means because uh, it, it puts a threat of your license in another country. So if you're operating in North Korea or China or something like that, where it's less transparent, uh, your behaviours and the type of money you're accepting, that put, might put your US license at risk if you're doing that. So they definitely line themselves. They've actually moved out of markets, which are considered to be high risk. We saw what happened with Crown in Macau. That's right, Yeah. So that's that's a key risk, and that puts your whole license at risk in established markets. So they play in those mar- they operate in those markets, and I think it's uh, I think that's an advantage because you should technically get a high multiple for that. That you've got this lower regulatory risk uh, uh, coming towards you. Also, they do spend quite a bit of time on responsible gambling, on how understanding their base, their players, the nature of their players, and they can sort of sense. Well, they've got uh, some AI and they they look at the behaviour in that and they will switch off their players if they're getting ahead of themselves uh, or putting limits into them. So they, they're, not, they're not tone deaf to that. They understand that's – they want to, from what they've told us, they want a, a good market where it's sensible. Otherwise, you don't want the heavy hand coming in at some point. And that's always the risk with these businesses. That's your key downside risk. You want a good market, not a captured market. That's right. Yeah. All right, Vince, we finished every podcast with three uh, favourite questions. This week we've mixed it up a little bit. We used to have a question about your favourite investment book. The answers we found were kind of consistent. Common, consistent <laughs> yeah. Some common themes ran, ran through it. So we're going to try and make it a little bit more timely uh, and we've replaced it with what's the single biggest thing investors are getting wrong about markets at the moment? I, I, I mentioned it a bit earlier. It is how serious do you think the central banks are about getting rid of inflation? Now, a lot of it can be self-correcting as uh, supply chains, I mentioned supply chains normalise, but a lot of it isn't. And because they have one tool only, which is monetary policy, rates and their balance sheet size, as in getting rid of quanti- like going from quantitative ease and quantitative tightening. Uh, just like the benefit of going to zero rates and QE was a huge benefit plus fiscal policy coming in, benefit to all of us, the reverse will be as bad as well. And I think 
underestimating the seriousness as to how much they want to tackle inflation is the part that most investors are going to get it wrong. We will as well, up to a point. We just got to prepare for it. So that's where people are going to miss it. Because the people just go, oh, they can't go that hard. Yes, they can. There's plenty of evidence where they need to in that sense. And that's what the market's sort of not priced. They've priced in the discount rate and the market's gone up. The market's priced in lower multiples across the board, but not pricing in the fact that they may push this into a, a longer slider than we think. And you think they are prepared to do that, to essentially kill demand in the economy in order to get this inflation problem under control? Unless, uh, unless you see supply chains in quite a few things, like you're starting to see a bit of benef- uh, food prices starting to roll over a bit again. Um, but if you look at it, rent is a significant contributor. Rent is actually still very tight. While oil prices might normalise a bit, we think gas price, though, may not. And if you annualise where we are today, it's materially higher compared to last year. So that's the energy complex feeding through into inflation. And then we've got services inflation. That's the last bit. Healthcare costs are actually going up again, which is a pretty material contributor. And in the services economy, wages, that's going up. So inflation is going to prove to be a lot stickier. And I think that's what the central banks look at is how if expectations reestablish themselves to be more inflation, where people will buy today and not put off till tomorrow, they're going to have to do something about that. And I don't think the markets price that part in. They've gotten a little bit comfortable in the last month again. It's a war on multiple fronts and they might just have to drop drop the bomb. Look, for us, I hate to say it, but that sort of volatility is a benefit to us because you get opportunity out of that volatility. Question two, could you share a story of a big win or a big loss? What happened and what did you learn from it? I'll give you both. It's a big loss and a big win, but it's the same stock. Ripper. Yeah, so Crown, it was. Uh, We owned it uh, pre-corona. uh, we owned, it was twelve fifty odd thirteen dollars. They just walked away. Well, winner just put a, a bit on the table at thirteen. Well, under now the, there was a price. Uh, they walked away because uh, the deal effectively leaked. Uh, then you had Corona. Then we had Royal Commissions. If you could think about the worst thing that could possibly happen, every single one of those things happened <laughs> for Crown Murphy. <laughs> Basically, Murphy's Law. Perfect. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and, you know, it bottomed out at $6. I think the low was $6.12, right? So we had to wear that. But it was what we did when we got to the lows, which was more important, which was we started buying more because the work we had done was what gave us the confidence in that business was, A, it had a really good balance sheet, right? So they didn't run with a lot of debt as a business. And secondly, with Barangaroo going up, um, that was uh, pre-sales on the apartments, going quite well, even with corona. It was a nervous bit initially because everything stopped, but then they actually were able to clear the stock. So they had liquidity coming to the balance sheet as they sold that down. So balance sheet actually was getting better, even though they weren't operating as a casino. The Royal Commissions ripped through the business, uh, and our assessment was at the time, it's we weren't preempting anything, but if the companies did the right things regarding the board and the management and all the people that did things wrong and moved them on, the license is attached to the company, not to the people. So as long as they did what the New South Wales, particularly the New South Wales Royal Commission expected of them, which is what they were doing. They did everything. They bent over backwards, increased compliance, 
changed the team, uh, basically walked away from VIP, international VIP, et cetera, et cetera. They did everything they needed to. As long as there's milestones for them to achieve, to retain the license, at six bucks, you were basically getting, uh, we were getting asset value for the underlying businesses. Again, it goes back to your point earlier about companies with- Real assets. With real assets. In those ones, there's a few reasons we invest in companies. Asset backing is one of them. You're getting $12. We're getting 10 to 12 bucks, and at six, you're sitting there going, if the balance sheet's good and we're going to get, there is at least an outcome in 18 months, two years, where this thing will be operating again, then you put that in the bottom drawer and you just forget about it. So that went from one of the, a difficult outcome for us into where we doubled down basically in the sixes and sevens in the stock because we shut the market off, ignored the chatter, uh, did our work to understand the risks around the license. Um, but we had a very good, the board changed, et cetera. We had all the things happening that we needed to. Um, and we got involved in that, uh, trying to be a little bit more active in the conversations with the company because uh, we were a substantial shareholder, we were 10% at that stage when we bought more. And that provided us with the ability to uh, get a decent return because uh, we doubled down at the right price, stuck to our fundamentals and our, our discipline around companies. Uh, not a lot changes in a company um, typically for value to be destroyed. Things are pretty stable most of the time. It's mostly the tactical changes, like the economy get, rolls, off, rolls off the cliff pretty quickly or for whatever reason. Uh, that opens the opportunity for you to buy things below. So with Crown, that was one that was a terrible at the start, but worked out being a win because then obviously got the Blackstone bid at $13.10 uh, and that worked out quite well for us. So you, you, your thesis didn't really change. Just because there are these tail risk events, the takeaway to me is that you, you just can't be paralysed by the possibility of these tail events. If your thesis doesn't change, then that's a buying opportunity. Yeah, that's right. Look, you've got to do the work and understand if the facts change, change your mind. Uh, obviously, we were all over it because we had a pretty, <laughs> pretty significant position in it and we were uh, well aware of the risks. We basically, what you do is identify the downside and you look for the asymmetry in the return. If there's 5 to 10% more down, like when it got to 6 we're going, the downside here is seriously, it's property value. If we just sell the assets, we'll get more than our money back. Right, let's just close the business, right, and get rid of the licenses and just turn it into a hotel um, or a big shopping center. So the asymmetry of the risk for us at that point was it was like 60% upside down there or 100 at the right price. Uh, we don't get that excited um, by imputing that, imputing that. And the downside was a couple of percent. Uh, but the key thing I go back to is as long as the balance sheet's good, you can ride volati out volatility in businesses. So that's it's kept us, we've missed opportunities because of it because people get quite excited and they want the highly leveraged game to uh, companies where they can make a lot of money. But I tell you what, when things go wrong, it keeps you out of trouble. It protects your capital. But you're right, at some point, if nothing's changed, you've got to double down. No sunk cost fallacy in there? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you're managing for the long term, right, your, yeah. your investments. So you've got to think about trying to make every trade a point trade where you pick it, get it at the absolute lows and sell it at the absolute highs. No. Firstly, um, 
it's good to have some embedded tax gains in your portfolio over the long term. It's a great way to uh, not have to pay tax by not turning your portfolio over that much. Question three, if markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own shares in one company, what company would that be and why? I mentioned it earlier, it's Flutter. I just think that that US opportunity is totally underestimated by the market, given the market's gaze is only six to 12 months away as to what they're thinking about the business. You put, given the balance sheet's in reasonable shape and they generate so much cash and the management's LTIs are very much uh, aligned with the underlying shareholders in making that business successful, but also growing the rest of the businesses around the world in, in a responsible fashion. Uh, I think you could probably put it in the bottom drawer. And in five years' time, that US market will, I think, uh, people are underestimate how big it can be. Right. Uh, it could be, if you look at Australia as an example, um, that US, US sports are more uh, designed for online sports betting because there's more frequent stoppages, which means you can do more in game, in play betting. Right. Like you look at rugby league, there's mm-hmm. some. Stoppages, but not really. Soccer, less, it's more continuous game. And you look Whereas at you baseball, got, NFL. There's stopping for game. ads. They're stopping for ads, right? So that allows you to put more offers out. So I think people underestimate how big that business could be in the US. So that's the reason we stick with Flutter. Vince, thanks for coming on Rules of Investing. It's been great. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for today's episode. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. See you next week.